So hey, Al. I think Al is the. Um, so I know you're under L, but you, your name is actually Andrew, right? It is Andrew Lee Rubinger. The L is for Lee. L E E. And and you're still wearing the suspenders? The suspenders. Was I wearing suspenders at some point? Yeah, I think so. Oh my gosh. I, I probably probably not. I don't think. I, th I think I remember you. You always, you know, there was a joke or something like this. So you had, you know, the suspenders because you were together with the uh, Mojave Linux. What was the, um, you know? On Twitter, with Dan, yeah, and you oh, were, sure. yeah, yeah, and you, you had the suspenders, which just a joke, I think, in one point of time ten years ago. Oh my gosh, I wonder. Yeah, I, it, it was. They were. Um, there are any number of nights that we've forgotten, probably. Oh, okay. But I, and I can't say, I can't say I remember the suspenders, but definitely uh, my time working with Dan and on those projects very fondly. And you know, he and I got to speak a few weeks ago, and that was wonderful. Perfect. And okay, so the, the the show is not about suspenders, rather than you know, what was your first computer? Oh, my first computer! Oh my gosh! Yeah, you want to take it way back? Um, my first, my father had um, had some like old PCs uh, going going back, and um, I definitely I remember my first program was in GW Basic. Okay. And uh, yeah, I had, I had some like elementary school project it was it was like a separate separate from schoolwork but like another program we were we were doing in school that was centered on you know creativity and self-centered learning and it was yeah there was there's a there's a classical music piece called gavotte and um and then i was using gw basic with this sound command to like reprogram gavotte like i had i had the music sheet written out mm -hmm. i was playing violin at the time and um and i programmed <laughs> i programmed like the the internal speaker of the computer to play to play Gavotte, which was you know like like the system speaker to play okay. to play this classical music piece. And you enjoyed that, or you had to do this? Um, no, I really I really did enjoy it. It was, um, I mean, we I had to do something, but we had a wide berth over what it was, and then you know had had discovered that GW Basic had this this sound command. Okay. And I thought I thought it was thrilling to to tell a computer what you know what to do to have some agency over a thing. That ordinarily you had to conform to quite a bit, right? Okay, but uh, why you started with GW Basic at all? So why? Oh my gosh, I don't know. Well, I mean, I was I was in um, I must have been in the fifth grade at the time. Yeah, I was in I was in the fifth the fifth grade in you know our, our elementary school, our primary school, um, and it was what was available. Yeah, you know, there, there wasn't too much. There wasn't too much else. I think when, when you're a kid, right? It's whatever whatever is available to you, and and that's a reason that now later in life I come to appreciate how access to computing from an early age can can really set you on a path and how not everyone's got you know not everyone's got that that option yeah. and it can set you back early if you don't yeah yeah still but you know uh why you open gw basic at all and not starting playing games you know mm. oh i mean there were there were definitely my i think there were definitely my my fair share of games later um why gw basic yeah, well, it was my it was my father's work computer. I think he had. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, he had Lotus One Two Three. My father's an accountant. He had Lotus One Two Three on there. It's a it was a monochrome monitor, and there was like that spreadsheet application, Lotus One Two Three. And the game that I would play is if you like made you could draw in the spreadsheet, like you could you could draw in the cells, and then if you like scrolled down, then like you know the cells would fly up, and that would that would somehow animate, and that was my game was Lotus One Two Three. Okay. That was it. Okay, so I get you. So so you. 
it means you you had to use your dad's computer and there was uh, yeah. nothing exciting on it except you know this game in GW Basic. Uh, but still, you, you like computers or my, why you started at all with the computer? I mean, were you fascinated by the machine or why? Yeah, I mean, well, um, there was there was yeah as a, as a kid there was that then there was a gaming phase. Okay. Um, there was there was a gaming phase with um, I remember King's Quest was a game that was mm -hmm. very popular at the time, mm -hmm. and then I kind of I don't know I lost my love for gaming and my brother I have a, I have a younger brother he's five years younger and he really picked it up and to this day he is you know he he works in the in the gaming industry oh um, as as an engineer so cool. he really he really took to the gaming and I when I was in college again with my father uh, my father said. He had clients and they were, they were, they were software engineers. And he said, listen, you're in school. I don't, you know, I'm not going to ask anything of your education, you know, you know, your educational experience, the educational experience is yours, but I would like for you to do one thing. Please take a programming class. because I think it's something you may, you, you may really enjoy. And I did. And I was a freshman in, I was a freshman at university and that, yeah, that was it. I took that, that programming class and um, I, I thought that was wild. Is your dad programmer? No, he's he's an accountant, but okay. I think he had he had clients who were enjoying their careers in in programming. Ah, yeah. okay. And um, so, what I understood, so you started with your dad's computer, and then you mm -hmm. saw GW Basic, and you tried to program sound because yeah, it was fun. What happened after sure. that? So, what was um after GW Basic? So, what you did then? Yeah, then the the games. I don't, you know, I really my my I hadn't come into much like academic or math-based understanding, you know, when I was, when I was like in my young adolescence, you know, there was the GW basic when I was in fifth grade. So that I must've been probably 12 years old, 11 or 12 at the time. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, all through high school and stuff, I wouldn't say I was, I was using the computer too, too, too much. The, the, I was, I'm in a weird generation. Like I'm in the generation that grew up without the internet and then got it mm -hmm. in the house. You know, you're like, like my childhood started without internet. And by the time I left, I left high school, like there it was. And there was, there was dial up. And then, and then my family got broadband mm -hmm. the year after I left. Okay. That's kind of like a weird time in history to, to grow up, I think. Yeah. But also interesting one, right? It's like a super interesting one. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so like, I mean, you know, over dial up, you know, by, by my senior year of high school, it was like, I was downloading my first MP3s and it was, I graduated high school in, in 99. So like the state of the web was, was that like companies were trying to figure out what to use it for. And there was like this question of like, is this something that can make money? Is this something for business? Is this not? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It seems, it seems ridiculous now. <laughs> so but yeah, why, yeah, why, why you downloaded the MP3? Now I'm interested. Because it had, I mean, that was, that was such a better way to listen, to listen to music that you wanted rather than, because really? the other op, you know, the other option was to listen to the radio until the song you wanted came on and then hit record on the, on the tape deck. Yeah. <laughs> that was, uh, that was interesting. I was com complete different mindset. So, um, what yeah. I remember, uh, I, I did at the beginning of Java, some or Java E or enterprise Java, some, it was a core by RMI and stuff like that, some workshops. And I remember I was in the German telecom to telecommunication and there were people who had access to broadband. And they maintained, you know, machines with hundreds of thousands of MP3s, and they were they were just talking, you know, the entire lunch break about the MP3s, and and I and I said, okay, 
But what's the point? You cannot hear to everything you downloaded. And uh, and what I did instead, I you know uh, bought some CDs which I really appreciated. So I remember back then some you know Pink Floyd and uh, some Dire Straits and some some stuff which I you two really enjoyed back then. And mm -hmm. this was it. So I was not that you know interested in in downloading this same stuff as MP3. And I saved probably a lot of time. And uh, you know, I spent some t some some money, of course, to to buy you know the five to ten CDs. But this basically was right. And I can, if I had the mood, I just you know started the CD. And right now I have, of course, streaming. But it's not like that different. And not like I'm exploring all the time new music. So what I I search for this, what I know, or something similar, and that is right. So this is what I ask you because uh, so MP3 as it came out, I couldn't get the point. So why it's so great so if i download something you know mm -hmm. then i have to you know, copy it you know to mp3 player and this is uh, the, the, the entire hustle though, with you know managing the mp3 i said okay it's a waste of time so for me back then so this was just a question oh wow you you even felt that like the file management of it was like a barrier to entry for you no no not not at all but it's a waste of time you know because if i have you know my cd which i really like and i Take mm -hmm. with me. I can listen to in, in a car at a, like a portable CD player and everywhere. So it was no no friction at all. And with the MP3, you know, I have to find a site with good quality, download the thing. You know, I remember back then there were people with labels. They had to you know name the MP3 properly and and and, and mm. create catalogs. I say, okay, this is like you know a huge. I'm not a professional musician. <laughs> I just would like to listen to a few tunes. So this I just. Interesting. So that. Um... Oh yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, yeah. You're right. Like the CD was a very like buttoned up experience. You, yeah. you put it in, and all and all the music was there. I think with the MP3 thing for me was like, I would buy. I I spent. I I, I worked one shift a week. I worked one on Saturdays. I worked at a retail store mm -hmm. um, called called TJ Maxx, and then later at Starbucks. Okay. And that was you know when I was in high school. So like that was the job that I had, and I would take half my money. And put it into into like savings for for college, and then the other half um, would either be like the you know the one night out a week I'd like have like dinner with friends or something. But then the leftover was like CD money, and CDs were twelve dollars and eighty eight cents. And um, how how much were they? I, I want to say they, they were I think they were either eleven eighty eight or twelve eighty eight. Yeah, the same I in Germany. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really yeah. I, like it's very, it was a very weird. I said it's a very weird price, but Newberry Comics is the place mm -hmm. I was by my home where I'd go, and mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I'd get about. A, I think I got about a, one one album like every other week. Yeah, okay, there's not that yeah, that much in my case, but um, mm -hmm. it was a similar price, and and I worked with um, I was a wood industry, so it was a hard job, and oh, uh, yeah. uh, s similar stuff. But I bought you know some, uh, you know probably one CD a month or something like this. And I had, you know, mm. and I really enjoyed it because there was a nice cover and I read the lyrics and with MP3 was for me, okay, I could just download it and, you know, but yeah, but it's interesting, yeah, interesting mindset. And, uh, and uh, yeah, cool. Um, this was just, uh, was really interested. What, what was your thoughts, first thoughts about MP3? What what I can imagine, you know, if there was, um, mm -hmm. are you from California? I know I'm from Boston. I mean, well, I'm from the suburbs of Boston. Yeah, ah, okay. Sure. I thought no, mm -hmm. if they're in uh, bands like you know Red Hot Chili Peppers or whatever, they with no new song every weekend, so there will be a scene which have you no know, really easy access to MP3 and it's harder to get the CDs. This could be a motivation, but uh, oh, cool. Yeah, but okay, cool. <laughs> so what it means for me is, um, so forget about the MP3. It was just you know mm -hmm. inter interesting. Uh, 
interesting topic. But uh, at the university, you started. What 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 do you actually studied? Was it computer science? Okay, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, so I, yeah, right. I, so I entered university as an undeclared uh, at the oh. University of Massachusetts. Yeah, I, I entered undeclared, which is you know you're just you're a free you're a free agent academically, I suppose. Right? Oh, I did, so, didn't even knew this this is a thing. So you can start studying uh -huh. without saying what you're studying. Absolutely, because you know most universities, at least in the states, have um, like you know general education requirements, being like the types of courses, the core stuff that everyone has to do. Oh, so that gives you a couple of years of leeway to like knock off your core education requirements and try out a couple of electives before declaring a major and you know and, and working on that track. That's interesting. So I don't even yeah. know it's just possible in Germany. So uh, in my case, it is similar. So there's like a base study, I think it's called. Mm -hmm. This is the. Um, And uh, this is similar for taking the stuff for everyone, and then you have to decide. But uh, I think you have to apply already for computer science, and then you could probably switch. But I don't think it is possible just to start study without saying what. Interesting. Oh, sure, sure, sure. So you yeah, you start as undeclared, and then what? Start yeah. So I started as undeclared by the um, by my second semester at the second half of the year. Uh, that was you know I think when my father had kind of made his request. Uh huh. Um, Actually, no. Well, I'll, I'm I'm forgetting an entire part of this. I started I started as a music I started as a music production and engineering student at Ithaca College. That's true. I spent one semester at Ithaca College in New York, okay, uh, studying music production and engineering, and that was awesome. Cool. And um, again, like like roll the clock back. This is this is the fall of 1999, and if you can imagine a world in which a good university does not have a computer science department, uh, Ithaca did not. Mm -hmm. Um. And I transferred to the University of Massachusetts. I, I don't know. I'm certain I had good reasons at the time. But at, right now, when I think about it, I don't know how clear they are. But I did transfer to the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. And that is where I took my first programming class. It was it was like your intro, your intro to programming class. And it was intentionally difficult. Like on the first day of class, they were they were very clear. Like if you're looking to meet what they called like an R2 math requirement, if you're looking to meet an R2 math requirement, this class is the most difficult way to do it and i thought that was awesome i was like very excited right like i was like very receptive okay to the challenge of it and it was it was java they they were a forward-thinking university and in the spring of 2000 they their um their intro to programming class was in, was implemented in in java not bad it was jdk 1 2 i think um Yeah, that that could. I mean, I was. It was so. It, yeah, I was. I was so new. Everything was so new to me. The things like versions and whatever. I yeah. mean, at the time we were just um, like writing in tech. You know, we're writing in like, I, I like it. Must have been like Notepad, and then using Java C to compile stuff. Right. Yeah, this is what I did exactly. This was, yeah, this was very common back then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um and you, and was Java for you something special, or you you just did it because you had to? It was that first class was a was about like learning about data types, yeah, and how memory is stored, and um, you know some condition conditional logic and things like like looping structures, mm -hmm. like flow control, right? It's just yeah, it's conditional logic and flow control, and you know learning how to make counters and that kind of a thing. And um, I very I think I like very quickly after getting through the syntax of it was like, wait a minute, what what's the point of this? Okay. Like, like I have been using software programs my, my whole life, and mm -hmm. I'm hitting this thing, and it's on a console, it's on a terminal. I don't. How do I make a real program? Like, what's the yeah. what's the real program? And that's when the self study part, you know, starts to kick in. Yeah. And 
Um, and you come to find that like, well, there are these, you know, you can use these, you've used a web browser for stuff and that's a client, but there's something that's listening to this and that's called a server. Mm -hmm. And you can, you can actually write servers that respond to stuff and you can write them in Java. And once I kind of got hip to that, it was the servlet, you know, it was Java EE, it was servlet protocol and I needed a server to run it. And it was this thing called JBoss 2.x and, um, and I was off to the races. That was it for me. I thought that was the coolest thing I had ever seen in my life. I had a similar experience, uh, except yeah. that I started with C++ and I was also like, okay, what's the point of all this? And someone mm -hmm. mentioned, if you would like to do the real stuff, there is something on the horizon. It's called Oak, which is, of course, mm -hmm. Java right now. And I did some research, you know, and I find Javasoft. It was the, the comp company from Sun Microsystems back then. Um, which was founded or organization founded around Java. And I saw, sure. you know, the beautiful graphics, the coffee logos, like what's the point? It looks beautiful, but what is it? And then uh, there was the applet with the Duke. And I said, it's a little bit strange, but interesting. And then I was completely hooked. So this was like, also, you know, my through my self-study, I found Java as a, you know, alternative to C++ or C. Mm -hmm. And I really like that. So it's a similar experience to yours. But it was before servlets. So servlets happened. My first servlet project was around, I think, 1999 or 2000, something like this. It was before 2000. Um, when was it? 2001, I think. Um, yeah, as, as Java Web Server came out. Okay. And um, yeah. so and so then you did self-study and found, you know, the interesting stuff. And then you still enjoyed, you know, the university or you say, okay, now... I have to survive somehow, you know, the data structures and then focus on the cool stuff in my leisure. So what was your... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess, do you mind if I, like, I'll back up just one second and then get to, get to because that's a super interesting question. Um, I, I, it, like, it resonated with me when you, when you, when you said you were also looking for it, like, to do real things, right? There's yeah. this, there's the learning programming and it spits out whatever. Um, very quickly, like there were, yeah, there were two things I found super interesting. One is that like I could start to run like Monte Carlo simulations on, um, on like gambling things. And there was a nearby casino and I could like huh. mod, like I could use software to like model out what my, what my gambling approaches would be. Uh -huh. And like, I don't know when you're a kid and, um, I had a girlfriend at the time who was like studying abroad in Italy. And like when you could like use software to make, you know, to model out what your betting strategy is going to be and then go and get a bunch of money and get enough to like fly to Italy to visit your, you know, your college girlfriend. That is, that is a remarkable like it, motivator. It, it would be <laughs> so, still remarkable, you know, right now, I would say. <laughs> yeah, it would be remarkable right, right, right now. That, that's, that's totally true. But, yeah. but the biggest part, which you and I both had was this realization that like, it was, it was not just the programming language, it was the expressiveness of the web. Like it was this, you know, this idea that like there's this global publishing medium that's available to anyone in the world. This is the most, you know, this is the most amazing thing that has happened since the invented since the invention of the printing press. And all you have to do is learn to speak the language of it, and you can have access to be to be a global publisher for free. Yeah, that's that's insane as a like right as a as an advancement. And I wouldn't have maybe articulated it in those terms back then, but that's. I think that's what the feeling was. Mm -hmm. I had a girlfriend back then, and she was really interested um, in South, South Africa, so about mm -hmm. the, you know national parks. And at the beginning of the internet, I like, come with me, and we uh, uh, went you know to the um, 
to the not server room but the uh, like the computing room and there was the HP UX I think uh, machines and uh, I, I, I fire up the mosaic web browser and and we uh, you know looked at South African you know animals and she was really delighted at what the possibilities are so how connected the world really is and uh, and on the side note uh, my students so at the at, at the beginning of also similar to to your story were I think 180 people who started and I think. 18 people finished the entire study of... Uh, oh, uh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why. It was uh, not that hard, but probably too boring or whatever. And uh, But the funny story is, what I remember back then, it's a very similar situation to right now with all the social media. There was chat on the HPUX machines. And there were students, mm-hmm. you know, sitting, you know, uh, to, to very near to each other, you know, 30 centimeters or uh, a half a meter. And they were right, chat- chatting, they're chatting back and yeah. forth. And I say, oh, yeah. why not turn around and just say whatever you like to say? You know? And this is exactly right now we have, you know, the messages and WhatsApps and whatever. Instead of speaking to each other, you know, they send messages. Okay, this was, it, it started, you know, 1999 or even earlier. <laughs> no, I, and why is that? Because my roommate and I did the same, you know, we did the same thing over like instant messenger. We're in the same room, which is not big. Okay. And... And I guess, I don't know, doing like maybe doing our homework and stuff, but messaging each other instead of just turning around or talking it like, I don't, there was something about maybe the, maybe the way in which you're willing to share, you know, share of yourself different when you write it down as, as like it relieves a social anxiety, maybe I don't, I don't know why we gravitated. Yeah. You're interesting, right? So, but yeah. So you, so you asked about, you know, it's like what happened next with the self-motivation and, and, and also the people in your program, you know, not everyone made it. And this is where I went off the rails a little bit. I got, um, I got very ad- addicted to, um, to this self-study and self-creation thing. And by my final year of university, I, I actually, I didn't even know this was happening at the time because I was, I was so, I think, distraught over it that I was ignoring any of the ramifications of my decisions. But what I was doing was staying up all night and learning and coding and working with global, I mean, I was working with, with engineers all over the world who were helping me learn and build a thing. And what, what do you build? Yeah. I was building at the time, uh, two things. One of them, one of them was this idea that like, if you wanted to listen, if you were like a band or a music publisher, but you didn't want to let people download MP3s, maybe you wanted to stream it. Yeah. And I made a flash front end and a, like a Java enterprise back end to like upload music and then stream it through the flash player so it could be streamed cool uh-huh and like you know and used as a marketing device and i didn't i'm sorry my back uh you are back right now okay, okay great yeah sorry so i have to repeat so you, what you yeah. said is uh you 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 streamed from the enterprise server to the flash front end as a, as a marketing tool you said right yeah, well, like I mean, I had some idea that like bands would like if they wanted to release their music so people could listen to it, but not download it. Oh, you know, okay. I want, like if they wanted to. And this um, was your but I, business like, I didn't idea. know how to start a business. I don't know. I didn't know how to start a business. I don't know what I was doing. All I knew I was addicted. I was addicted to like the idea of building things. Okay. And and not like building a business out of it, but like just building the thing. Okay. And I think you know what, what was I nineteen twenty probably like pretty naive and the idea that like oh if you just build something cool then like you can build a business around it or like it'll take off and that's totally not what happens right okay. so so there was that and i had an i had an educational an educational system that was like a grade tracking and communication system to like bridge uh teachers 
parents and students together so that like everyone was on board, particularly at the high school level for like, you know, what was happening. So it wasn't like you could have, you could avoid that moment of the kid getting their grades at the end of the term and it being a complete surprise. So something like so Facebook, that, right? That was something like I think there's there are systems now that are more like like Canvas. I think is okay. No, but it's kind okay, of like a social system with uh, notes. Yeah, about, right? it was. I I branded it as like as like an online grade tracking system, okay. and it also had it also had the ability to do exams. Okay. But again, I was built. I was just building software. But how you got like the idea for both systems? I mean. Well, yeah, the, the high school one was built out of, you know, like that that moment when I was in high school and I would get my term grades and it was always kind of a surprise. Like, oh, I did better here than I thought or oh, okay. I did worse. And, I, you know, I was like, why, why am I not getting this feedback like in real time? I wanted to shorten the feedback loop. OK. Um, and the MP3 was, one? Yeah. The MP3 one. Why the MP3 one? Um, the MP3 one, because because Napster at the time was was a was a huge debate. And ownership of music, right? I mean, people were just downloading downloading MP3s illegally, and artists weren't getting um, weren't getting royalties. And it was a massive debate about whether this is, you know, is this billing? Yeah. Is this sharing? And I was hoping for a way to use the internet to give to give content creators some agency, so that so that they could still satisfy the need of people to listen to the music, but not necessarily give up give up the ownership and the royalties. And this would solve my problem with the CDs because I could just, you know, download your flash player, you know, put whatever yeah, and I like and just, just listen to it without all the, you know, renaming and categorizing hassle with MP3s. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but I but I didn't know how to make a business out of any of these things and these things were eventually tackled by other play like like MySpace was huge and MySpace yeah. was MySpace was weird because it was like kind of a social network, but also there was a huge band component that had exactly this music streaming thing in it in the bands. And a lot of bands promoted themselves through it. Plus it was part social network. Yeah. Plus it was, you know. And, and it was huge until it suddenly disappeared. This was the interesting part. So I think within yeah. one year it just disappeared, right? Yeah, I, I don't remember how long it took, but definitely like the winds of change kind of yeah. came and, yeah. and MySpace like, you know, exited. I mean, they, MySpace sold. I think Tom sold. And then and, and exited the. And, but and in that time, during know, the okay. study, so you spent mm -hmm. all the time with Java, right? So Java backend with JBoss. So you, totally, and sleeping through all of my classes, and I didn't, I did not realize this until 15 years later. But <laughs> it, it is true that um, in my final year, I took, I took 10 classes, five each, five each semester. Mm -hmm. um, I got two A's, and they were in a repeated repeated independent study for this work I was doing at night. So they didn't count because the independent study had already been done and you can't repeat it for credit. So we got mm -hmm. two A's that didn't count and eight F's. Mm -hmm. um, and F's and are I, bad, right? F's are bad. You can't, you can't do worse than F's really. Okay. F's is, yeah, F's is the university's way of saying, um, like you, you might as well have not shown up. <laughs> yeah. Um, Interesting. You know why? Because I did a similar experience at, uh, during the study, but I uh, worked actually a uh, whole time uh, for, for various companies, um, also with Java. And, um, and I thought, you know, I'm really good in programming. So there was one, um, one course. It's called Basics yeah. of Programming. And mm. I got to the F in your world. Yeah. And I say, uh, this was impossible. So I, I was, I think I was somehow a good programmer, but I couldn't pass, you know, the exam. And then I look at the exam and say, okay, this is a, somehow about programming, but I have to learn, you know, the stuff as well. So I'd, the next time I learned for this exam and then I passed with a, 
mm. don't know whether it was A, but probably B, I would say. But I said, okay, this is really strange, right? Basics of programming, and I'm programming now professionally already, and I cannot pass the exam. <laughs> so um, you, you really have to learn at the university to have good uh, uh, good marks, right? Yeah. I mean, you, for anything you do, you've got to apply yourself and put the effort in. And I yeah. think, look, I, I was immature, and I don't think I had realized that I was being motivated by something, and all my attentions were there. And, you know, this is now my senior year of, of university, so... 12 years, you know, 12 years of stuff in the, in the public schools system up to high school, through high school. Mm -hmm. And then for, you know, I'm, I'm, this is now my 16th year of schooling and I'm just, I'm unaware how burnt out I am from it and unappreciative I am of the opportunity to be in an educational environment. And I was looking to, to make something and do something. So I, I thought I left. I thought, I mean, I walked at graduation, but I kind of had the idea this wasn't, I wasn't actually going to finish. I had no idea how badly I had messed everything else up, but I, um, I, I got it. I got a job working on open source things for a company in Boston. Mm -hmm. Um, and I thought, all right, I'll just, I'll leave school. And if I have a couple classes, I'll like, I'll finish it up later. Um, and, and I was like, that's the whole point of this anyway, right? To get a job, to be a contributor to society, yeah, exactly. to be able to, right? And I really justified it for myself. And it was, yeah, it was a couple of years working with this other company using open source for their solutions. And then another couple of years in New York, um, using, using the newer versions of, of the JBoss enterprise server. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and starting to become a contributor and contributing, you know, bug fixes and some feature enhancements and stuff. And then, um, and then after a couple of years after that, got a, a job offer to go work for JBoss, which had just been acquired by Red Hat. Mm -hmm. And um, gosh, that was like a real validation of everything that I, that I had done. And I, I, was, I was there for 12 years. Yeah, cool. I was, I was thrilled to get that job. Two questions. So the first one, mm -hmm. why you started with JBoss as a student? So you could just write everything from scratch. So why JBoss? Because, you know, this is more yeah. like startup mentality. So why you picked, yeah. you know, enterprise Java stack? You could choose whatever you liked. I'll give you the same reason that our founder gave when he when he pitched the thing. It was, it was free and it didn't suck. Okay. You know, like yeah, yeah. yeah JBoss at that time had differentiated itself that it like you know it it had lowered all the barriers to entry for a developer. It was something that you downloaded, unzipped, and you know you hit go and it fired up. Nick. That's how it worked. And and a lot of other stuff at the time was coming from big players and there was license click-throughs and um, get yourself in the sales database and what like many, many barriers to entry. With this, it's just like, hey, like you want you want to build an enterprise class application. We have all sorts of stuff for it. You can just use the web stuff if you want. There's like mailing modules, there's messaging, there's a whole world of stuff. This whole suite is free for you to start using. Go right ahead. Mm -hmm. And it ran right on my machine. Yeah, cool. And how you got the job after your study? Um, because I, yeah, because I had the skills, I, I so had you apply for the job or you were asking over someone. So how you got, you know, the opportunity to work for the open source company? Yeah, that, yeah, that was a Craig. Yeah, that was a Craigslist. It was a, the job. The first job was a Craigslist thing. I searched, I think, I think I searched for the term JBoss and that would pop up a whole bunch of, of jobs that were looking for engineers that were using JBoss, right? They had JBoss in their okay. shops. And yeah, and then and you know, by nature of having done all the self study and stuff, I had practical experience having having built what they were looking, you know, the types of things they were looking to build. Open source, open source was the thing that that because it was a community of people that taught me how to do this well, mm -hmm. really broke broke that 
that chicken egg problem of you can't get a job before you have experience and you can't get experience before you have a job. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so and, actually, and, so your behavior yeah. paid off, right? So uh, because yeah, you, the behavior. Yeah. Yeah, I lucked out. Yeah. Cool. And uh, how you got the job at uh, JBoss and Red Hat? Um, by nature, I mean, yeah, by nature of using their stuff, they had they had um, user forums that were very active at the time. So you know, in the user forums, as you were going through going through your workday for your employer, you might have questions about how to best do things, or um, and you could be answered. Sometimes it was the project leads who would answer. Sometimes it was other users who had done things before. Sometimes there was an answer that someone had asked months prior okay. and would help you along. And by nature of getting involved in the user forums, you would start to like help other people along their way. And that built a little bit of a, a community. And, you know, then I think the real switch was when, um, I started using like some of their, their more recent, like advanced tech. They, they, they were building out, um, their version of the, the new EJB container, the new enterprise Java beans container. Oh, it was Java what, E5 like, then? It was Java 3. Yeah, they, they were they were on their way to Java E5 and they were starting to build out like the release candidates for this for the for the third version of EJB for so EJB3. Th then I think it was around right. 2007. That's exactly right. That's mm -hmm. that's exactly what it was. Mm -hmm. And and those release candidates, you know, I started using them and they had bugs. You know, like like you know, there was behavior that it was giving me back I wasn't expecting. And, um, I contributed some bug reports and then in one case, like pulled and for the first time, you know, like pulled down the source of the server and tried to figure out where the bug was and sent some stuff in, into the, the project team leads. And it, you know, I think when you develop that type of relationship with the people developing the software, they then needed to hire more people on their team. And one day I got an email that was super simple. It just said like, Hey, Andrew, uh, I'm the lead of the EJB3 project. Um, we have an opening on our team. If you're interested, please send me your CV. Okay. Who was it? That was Carlo DeWolf. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. And yeah. And I mean, I had a huge kind of like nerd crush on him and Bill Burke at the time as mm -hmm. well. And they were, you know, they were both in, I, I had to interview with both of them over the phone and I thought that was wild. You know, Bill was on the specification committee that, that made this, you know, that was defining the future of enterprise Java. And I was, I was over the moon about that. I think a Bill was a harder interviewer, right? Bill, yeah, Bill was a harder interviewer. Yeah. I distinctly remember, I hope he, I'm sure he won't mind my, my sharing. No. Like he asked me, he asked me like some questions about, um, about con like some concurrency controls within, um, within Java. Concurrency is, mm -hmm. um, you know, like when you, when you have many things all mm -hmm. kind of happening at once and you've got to do that in a very you know, careful and safe way. Mm -hmm. And he's asking me about like implementation differences in, in some of the, um, the various concurrent libraries. And I thought I was being super smart because I was like, no, 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 no. Like I, you know, I, clearly I'm an EJB program. I program with EJBs. Um, and the whole beauty of that thing is you don't have to worry about the concurrency because the server takes care of it for you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's isolation. It's, it's security through isolation. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, and he was like, yeah, that's, um, that's pretty clever. Um, but you are, you, but you are applying for the job of the person that makes the server. <laughs> so you need to know about the concurrency yeah. to make it easy for the user to not know about it. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I think I was speechless in that moment and was certain that I had totally messed up my chances to work there. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Cool. Great story, actually. And what you did at yeah. uh, JBoss then. Yeah. 
you you are the container implement, uh, uh, developer or what was your job at uh, JBoss or Red Hat? Oh, initially, yeah, initially it was working. It was to build out. It was to build out our implementation of the of the EJB container, which was you know the thing that handles business logic requests in in a, in the enterprise server. And oh, the, um, the, yeah. by the way, uh, as the mm -hmm. JBoss uh, three came out, the preview, I used the EJB three container to hack my heating control. Which was oh, the, nice. which was the first <laughs> accepted talk at Java One, because oh, I applied for Java One for from two thousand one I think to two thousand seven with various reasonable mm -hmm. talks, and the first one which was accepted is, you know, how to hack how to hack your heating control with EGB three, and the funny story <laughs> is the funny story with with that is that the the first bug I saw at EGB three and uh, JBoss uh, three back then is you know the packages were not right. So the import, so this was just mm. Java X EJB was in the wrong package. And yeah. I thought, yeah, and I, I I thought, you know, should I, this is a, probably a bug. Should I, you know, do something about this? Like it's impossible, you know, the JBoss guys did a mistake. So I go, how can I, you know, how can I submit something? And I just, okay, I will wait and then it will resolve. So that, this is, you know, a complete different mindset. For my, it was like, you know, um, I was a, a young developer, so it's impossible for me, you know, to contribute something meaningful to the open source community. And for you, it was natural. You no, know? so okay, why not? Just do it. Um, oh my gosh, I remember that. Yeah, no, I, rem I if I'm remembering correctly, it was, you know, like the the specification was evolving over time, yeah. and as the specification was being written, yeah, Bill was also implementing. You know, the team was we were implementing these tech previews. Yeah. So. The, because the spec wasn't final yet, we weren't going to put them in an official namespace like Java X dot exactly. EJB or whatever, right? So it was, yeah, it was in some separate namespace with the with the idea that we would use that to like signal that this API was not to be like relied upon really going forward. Yeah, exactly. And then also like just when it was all done and locked, then I mean I don't know whether you'd remove your imports and then auto import all the new stuff in the new namespace and it would just work or something. But yeah, that's totally right. Yeah, exactly. Because the APIs were changing. Yeah. And what I didn't knew that you are the you you had implemented EGB container because I met you I think the first time in Vienna at a conference in person. So mm -hmm. I did a talk about Java five something and did it also a talk and I saw you are evangelist, but you're actually a serious developer, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> or masquerading <laughs> as one. I mean, there was a lot of mentorship. I mean, I I had gone from being what I thought was a hotshot application programmer at the places I was working into now making software for a global audience and on the server side. And there's a, that is a different class of, of engineer, at least, you know, at the time or in, and I, I got, it took me, it took me at least a year, I think, to get properly mentored and comfortable in there. And Carlo was, I mean, Carlo was amazing in that regard. He did not, he did not settle for anything that was like good enough. Things should be right. He was open to, disagreement and you had to make a good case to him he'd give you all the time in the world to go back and and make it right it was he was patient but he was demand you know demanding in the final product and mm -hmm. taught me all sorts of things that like you know you don't necessarily get in a smaller company like what is an api leak why do you need api separation from implementation mm -hmm. how do you avoid cyclic dependencies how you know what how do you make sure you have a good test suite to protect you in the future those mm -hmm. types of ideals stick with me to this day. Cool. And you stick with the JBoss container all the time at Red Hat. So what you did, what do you know? What were your, what was your journey, journey at um, Red Hat? Right. Okay. So, so at the time, the time that I had met you was probably, you know, along like my second 
big project there. And that that was born out of, okay, I'd been working on the EJB container. That's awesome. We're making a server. And I was noticing that like, huh, <laughs> to, to make this thing, to build it, to start it up, to deploy an application, there's this like dev test cycle that was remarkably long. Mm-hmm. It's just long. Like you just start a server and get a, you know, get a flat file, you know, a, a, a artifact from your deployment, a jar file and deploy it into it. It was cumbersome and slow. Mm-hmm. And, and like fundamentally, I was like, why do we need any, you know, it seems to me that the server can just kind of like be there and running and all it needs is a byte stream, you know, all it eventually needs in the end is a byte stream to deploy it. So why do we need to like package all of this stuff in a separate packaging step? And, and I had conceived of this thing that then, you know, it was, it was a virtual file. It was, it was an API for a virtual file system of sorts. Mm-hmm. And it later became the shrink wrap, the, the shrink wrap library. Yeah. And we paired that with the deployment mechanism called our, you know, to you know, a deployment mechanism that would hook into, to J unit as a testing framework. Mm-hmm. And that became the Archelian test platform. And that's when we started doing the public speaking and I met you and, you know, we really started to like hammer in on the developer usability for enterprise Java and, and encourage testing because it was going to be easier and you know, more fun. Yeah, exactly. So uh, yeah. ah, so you so you are one of the authors of Sh- Shrink Wrap as well. Yeah, I was I was the creator and an author of Shrink Wrap, and then on the founding team of Archelian. and and wow. Ashlock had yeah, Ashlock I, had done. A, I forgot yeah. about that because I have a, t- oh, yeah. a shirt from you still. So I'm <laughs> actually downstairs. I got to you know a nice shirt with Archelian on it because I think I've wrote a review for your book or something like this. Or mm-hmm. that's exactly you wrote the forward. You wrote the forward for our book. Exactly oh, right. I forgot completely about that. You see how small <laughs> the world is. Um, I know. I just wanted to talk with you because I just remembered. You know, we had a lots of nice conversations about mm-hmm. productivity, simplicity, Java E five, and I remember you know uh, the our conversations in Vienna, and I think uh, Devox. And what I also remember Devox was that um, I met you. I think mm-hmm. Gavin King then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we had a, a, a lunch together, and I said, you know, you have to be careful with the Archelian thing because it is widely overused. So people you're testing, you know, get us and set us with Archelian, and it's just yeah. way too slow. And someone from your team said, okay, it was never meant to do this way, right? So this Archelian yeah. is just used for, you should never use it for everything because it's way too slow. And uh, this is what I remember, and this was one of my, so I go, hey, look, I even know, you know, the committers from Archelian, and they also say, no, don't use Archelian for everything, just for system and integration testing if you really have to. And yeah, uh, yeah so funny. So it was- That's totally right. Yeah, you totally nailed it. Like that, that was the pitch. Archelian was to expose system and integration tests with, yeah. with the ease of use of a unit test. Mm-hmm. It was to look and feel like a unit test and allow you to write- just like EJB was, EJB was to a, a component model for business logic. Yeah. It let you focus on your business logic. Mm-hmm. Archelian let you focus just on your test logic. Yeah. And it was meant for system and integration tests and, um, and exposed them as unit tests. And that was the simplicity it brought. Yeah, and then we see people like, yeah, trying to, trying to test getters and setters with it. And you just, you didn't, why? You don't, you don't need to do yeah, that. Yeah, this is uh, a little bit ex- uh, over-exaggerated, but uh, yeah. exactly what happened. But uh, because my approach to testing, we had a lot of conversations about that was more like, you know, you, um, if you have to, if you, let's say you have an entity with some behavior, so you sure. compute text. So you don't have, you know, to start the entity manager, inject the entity manager, fetch a record from the database only to test mm-hmm. the behavior. I can just create the entity with new 
set you know their state and then invoke the method and I'm done and I'm and this is the best test ever because I'm even independent from the database and then if I have you know to test let's say a service and the service depends on the list of object which comes from a database what I can also do I can just instantiate the service you know mock out the list and I'm done I don't have to boot the server and this is where I use Archelian only in rare cases but there were no the killer cases where without Archelian it would be crazy and the shrink wrap was great invention because with shrink wrap you can vary, you know, the contents of a war. You uh -huh. can create one war with one interface, two implementations, one interface, one implementation, and one interface and no implementation, and see whether it works. So these were the really interesting killer killer use cases for Achillean, and uh, so this is why you know there was a lots of discussion about Achillean back then, and also there were some sometimes. Spring to Java E migrations and the Spring developers always tried you know to boot the application server. I say ask them why you are doing this because you can just you know create with new you pojos. We have just pojos and just test them. You don't have you know to boot the servers. They say yeah, but we want you know to test the dependency injections. Okay, but if you are testing the dependency injection, you are testing whether the dependency injection is dependency injection is working, which was properly tested by the vendors and. Um, Later, we will use system tests and we'll test and you know, the whole package. And this was interesting discussions back then. Yeah, so, and I think they, st they still are because we still, you know, it was a really powerful tool. And, you know, I I don't even know if I agree with, with all, all that. And that's the beauty of kind of the debate is that we felt that, like, there were a whole bunch of people that felt that they could instantiate an entity manager and put it in there. And we've kind of felt that the power of this was that, like, no, 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 if if you're testing mocks or you're manually instantiating, then you're not testing the real thing. You know, the real thing is what's provided to you at runtime. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to like shrink wrap, then yeah, then we noticed that people started people started varying their deployments for testing, testing a varied type of deployment because shrink wrap made it so easy to do that. And then Corel Pilco like very kindly kind of wrote for us that first implementation of shrink wrap resolvers, which was to be like, okay, we're gonna test. By shrink wrap resolvers, we're going to test the thing that was like put into Maven. We're actually going to go through the entire Maven dependency resolution yeah. mechanism mm -hmm. to pull out the thing that's going to that's that's going to be used, represented as as the archive for the deployment, and um, and test the thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember. I also use resolvers because I also yeah. use um, Archelian together with Graphene. I don't know whether you are aware mm -hmm. of Graphene. It was like you could uh, remote control the browser with a Selenium yeah. with a nice API. And then resolvers were actually nice because uh, you could say uh, all the just take all the dependencies. I uh, just interested in the browser. But uh, regarding the entity manager, what what I did and still do in projects is I don't care about the you know uh, instantiation of the entity manager at all during the unit tests. But what I always did is I focus on black box or system tests. So what it means is right mm -hmm. now, for instance, in OpenShift or Docker or in the clouds. We package as fast as possible the runtime. It is usually, you know, Wi-Fi, Quarkus, Open Liberty, Payara, something like this. It mm -hmm. boots up. We wait until, you know, the liveness and readiness probes are ready. And then we just launch the system test from outside. So the entity manager is tested in real environment. I real means it, it looks like, you know, the production environment. And in the during development phase, we just focus, you know, on the business logic unit tests, some queries. So I don't like, you know, the double tests. I don't have to boot, you know, the container twice, once on my machine. And then even if even if this is perfect, I still have to retest in an integration environment the same code, which 
you know is is slow and and and, and problematic mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think i think that was really similar to the position i initially took right like mm -hmm. test your business logic inside then do your full system test yeah then we discovered a new a new type which like ashlock and i were, were calling gray tests at the time i think hey, ashlock, exactly i remember him <laughs> exactly yeah. oh, he was yeah. also yeah, the, yeah exactly. i mean he wrote Archelian. like yeah. definitely you know like the core of it and the, and um oh, you know bartage also wrote any number of extensions including the data one yeah. um but yeah so the gray box tests were like we came to find that like there was also a type of test that needed to not just be black box and not just be on the inside but did need to be running in the container where we, we would actually and we would we would deploy the test itself as a deployment yeah so that it had access to container context and then could do things yeah and the reason that we needed to do that was because the because the enterprise Java framework allowed you to do really powerful, potentially dangerous things with very simple ways. For instance, there are all the transactional annotations, mm -hmm. and you may you your, your business may actually be relying on a proper transactional context, like it always requires a new one or it suspends another one. Like when you start having nested transactions, this becomes problematic. Like. Um, yeah. Let's say I walk into the casino, like I walk into a casino and I play a hundred games of poker and there's an error in one of them. Mm -hmm. The error in that one should invalidate just that one game, not the entire visit to the casino. Yeah. So we needed to like, so the gray box testing was a way to like inject the test in there and like really get down and dirty with, with, um, validating your, you know, your container constraints in the real environment. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's kind of, you know, the book, the book talked a lot about those types of, yeah. those types of scenarios. But I, I gave you an even better example where it was impossible yeah. to, 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 to test the system without Achillean. This was one of the, um, oh, yeah. the uh, we can talk about because it was um, uh, more or less open source then. So I wrote a integration for Vardin. It was uh, several years ago and um, mm. we had to introduce our own scope. It, I think it was called ViewScope. It was like, you know, Per tab, browser tab, there would be a scope. All the instances are bound to the browser tab, not the entire browser. And you know, with Archelian, what I could do is I could package with string wrap, you know, uh, some beans, and I just counted the references. How many are they per browser tab? I tried to you know break the system and see whether the scopes are actually working. And with Archelian, it was beautiful because you, I could just inject the instances and count them. I could also vary the content. So, for instance, um, what I remember was uh, a, a browser tab was a, a had a path. So I try you now to deploy two beans with the same path, and I expected a, a exception. So I can vary you know the deployment's contents, or oh, I can yeah. just uh, forget you know intentionally the path and expect a different exception. And all, all the validation happens at deploy time, so it was actually impossible to use unit tests for that. So this was one of the killer, killer, killer use cases for for Achillean, and still is. So I'm I, I, the gray gray test is for me like you know a power tool or expert mode, where but not all applications require that in level of 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 you know of sophistication because. In a typical, you know, data-driven application, you you don't have uh, nested transactions. You just have, you know, a transaction at boundary level, and you are ready to go, right? Yeah, and you were always really good at the like finding these types of cases because you know, I remember you you I mean you you had a a guide of just like different 
different design patterns to yeah. apply yeah. and you might apply them. And it was like, a, it was a continuous, that type of educational material along with, I remember like David Blevins had a lot of great stuff with open EJB mm-hmm. really set out the, you know, it, it like helped people not just use their thing, but, but figure out how to, how to get stuff done. It was a great series. Oh yeah. Thank you. But, um, the, uh, what I actually did, I simplified all the stuff, right? And, and this is what I wrote 10 years ago. I, I mentioned it. So we, we are after recording of the AX TV. And I mentioned again because I get still questions about that. It is always, you know, very basic and simple idea. If you enter the system, you start a transaction. And then it just reuse the transaction because it's natural. And then everything mm-hmm. else is like, you know, uh, an expert system. Or you, there's you no know, the exception from the rule. So this was the basic rule. And yeah, yeah and we always met, you know, the Dan, uh, you and David Blevins at various Java ones and talk about the stuff. And uh, it was always, you know, interesting conversations. So um, you stick with the uh, Archelian and Shriekwrap till the end or yet other, other, you know, uh, missions at, at Red Hat? Oh, no. Yeah. So, I mean, we had, we had gotten, we had gotten Archelian and Shrinkwrap into a, like a good stable a good stable point where we were hitting the majority of the, of the use cases we wanted there was a great extension community and like a lot of a lot of great contribution that dan had worked in particular to set up in terms of guide translations and then Ashlock was was very involved in getting people um empowered to write extensions you know this this notion of like an extensible core was like very very helpful to us mm-hmm. and into the community because people came up with ideas that we would not have thought of and they were remarkably successful and well received um and then I moved, yeah, I moved on. I wanted to get a kind of a greater understanding of how stuff got done in, in the business of delivering software. So there was a time that I, I went into the business unit and I was working under Ray Plosky. Okay. And he was just so wonderful at helping me to navigate now like this, this change in culture from engineering units to business units and what motivates them. And, and we, you know, we started up the developer conference at Red Hat mm-hmm. uh, called Dev Nation. Okay. And, and that was like a really wonderful experience to, to get to work with stakeholders in, yes, in engineering, but like across the organization and outside in, in a different way than we did, than we'd done before. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also worked, you know, when, when we did formalize a, a developer group within Red Hat with them, um, on like any number of both like engineering and, and business related, you know, initiatives to, to see what we can do to like make sure that we're doing outreach. To a developer audience in this now very changing world, where like we used to ask, we used to ask the developers like to surrender some things to like the Java Enterprise server, right? Mm-hmm. Like we like threading is not going to be yours anymore, and like resource sharing and that kind of stuff to the to the server. And then when when Cube and containerization came along, that's a whole other level of things you, you surrender up to the system, and so much less of your application is in your app code, and now is you know in this grander grander cloud system mm-hmm. so managing that change has been you know very interesting too mm-hmm. but uh, what's interesting is actually nothing yeah. changed so what's funny thing is if you know follow the programming restrictions from ejb and java e and you mm-hmm. understood what actually the ideas were you you were actually cloud native back then because you never tried you know to read files from local file system you didn't try to you know lock the threads. It's exact exactly what you need, you know, on Google App Engine functions or or in the cloud. So there is actually no difference. It is you know um, different framing, right? Or the how to name things is different, but the concepts were always there. 
And developers really complained about the restrictions, you know, mm-hmm. the Java E and programming restriction from EGBs, but now you, you get the same restrictions in Docker or, or Kubernetes. Yeah, I think I think well, I I think most of my career has been defined by my opinions on the subject of like how much has has changed. I, I think like a remarkable amount has, but you're right about these fundamentals. Yeah, fundamentals, the, yeah. These fundamentals, I mean, what you're asking, what we're, what we're asking for is for like developers to surrender the tools they know, which is like access to the file system, which is easy mm-hmm. to go do something else. And people just want to do the easiest thing. Mm-hmm. And that is just like, no, I, like I, I get an upload, I'll write it on the file system. And that's, a, it's just not, yeah, it's not a way to do it in a cloud native world. And it wasn't a way to do it in, in any like other hosted world. Yeah, exactly. Finding your application into the hardware and mm-hmm. it like, you should never make the assumption that your application is bound into the hardware, mm-hmm. um, even if it is easier. So yeah, yeah, we, we struggled with that. Yeah. I think the critique I have now for the, the general industry is that like as DevOps and um, and GitOps have, have come into to practice, I really have to ask myself over the past decade, it looks like we've made a lot of ops tasks really easy and we've made stuff that used to be very simple for dev, very, very difficult. Um, and I think that that's that's the shift that the that the industry should really pay attention to now. Yeah, and you said you know the changes. So if we would pick an you know, application we built, let's say 2010, let's say so mm-hmm. Java six t- uh, time frame, yeah. and you will look at the source code right now, and I will tell you, you know, the source code runs in the clouds. It will be almost identical source code with a little bit more YAML. But from if you focus on business back then and focus on business right now on the domain problems, the source code is almost identical. The problem is, you know, over-engineered projects back then mm. are will would be absolutely incompatible with clouds right now. This is the funny, you know, observation. So that people back then, some projects try to protect themselves using you know, lots of abstractions and, you know, over-engineering. And this becomes a problem if you migrate a project to clouds. But if you just focus on the domain logic back then, you could very easily migrate whatever you had back then to the clouds right now. So this is my general observation, which is uh, somehow funny. Yeah, Java Enterprise has been like remarkably resilient. And I, and I think if you're you're right, if you obey those fundamentals and you like properly, um, you properly contained out and modular like modularized your business logic mm-hmm. into like something that approximates a plain objects in, yeah. in a sensible model and then used the interfaces of servlets and messaging systems and other things to to handle your interaction with the outside world a lot of that stuff would just port right over into like new quarkus things yeah. And maybe with like annotation or packaging adjustments, you'd like, like yeah, you, I think you'd be able to take like a decade old system and, and really be able to keep so much of the application code. It's then all the, it's the, it's all the packaging and other stuff on top of it, yeah. which I find difficult. The interaction of, you know, containerizing things, having them all speak together, acting what the authoritative system is, getting the secrets, shared you know, credentials, all, all of those things, I think, um, are where we start just to see complexity. So you spent your last uh, your last your last last uh, years at Red Hat as a manager in business unit. Yeah, as, as a manager, sure, as a manager both within the developer group and and in middleware engineering. Okay. Were, were my last few years at Red Hat, working on 
like re- like really s- simple questions. I'd, I'd kind of say like, if if I if I'm a new engineer, if I'm a new developer, and I want to make an application that like reads an HTTP request and writes some content to a database, how long does it take me to to stand that up? And I think the answer should be like five minutes. Yeah. Built and deployed. Built and deployed in the public environment. That should be five minutes. Absolutely. Uh, and we were working on on things like that, like big questions that were not like, how do I improve this component or that component? I wanted to like, how do I, how do we improve how all how all of these things work together and are built together? Yeah, I name it uh, that, time, time time to hello world. You know, how long it takes to see hello world on the screen? Yeah, very very and, important. Yeah. It, it is. And and a lot of the critique I get is that like, okay, that's cool for greenfield problems and toys and good for demos, but not good for the real world. And and the pushback I give there is, um, well, you, you need to be able to solve the greenfield case before you can do the iterative development one. And if you can't, you know, understand the system as, as like the whole of the parts all working together, then I think we're, we're in general, like as an industry, as an in, my industry critique, kind of missing the point. And if you point me, to, if you point me to a blog post or a series of postings that say in like two or three pages how to do one simple part of it, something that could fundamentally be like a checkbox, then you know that that's the user design stuff that we're at. And the types of questions I'm after now are: let's design, let's design our software from the user needs in, rather than the like the arc, the infrastructure out. Mm-hmm. It's not my job to like put a configuration option on every single thing that Cube can do. I'm more interested in the like, what's the user needed? What's the simplest way we can get them that? Yeah, and we already had it right in, in the enterprise Java at the beginning. It was a uh, very important to configure everything, so everything was configurable. And then it was a huge debate, you know, uh, with Ruby on Rails and convention of a configuration <laughs> or convention yeah. by exception, and say, okay, we actually only have to you know configure the the uh, unusual things. And now everything repeats again. I think so. We have yeah, uh, yeah, with uh, YAML, not with XML, but uh, similar story. So um, so at the, at the end you were a manager, and you know, and you, and you thought uh, about uh, about uh, things, which I'm also thinking a lot. You know, um, what it takes to start a project, and uh, it should be as simple as possible, as uh, as as clear as possible. Yeah, and now we are coding again, or still manager? Well, so um, so I mean. So <laughs> to come back a little bit to the like the, the leaving school story, right? You know, like I, I had left school to go start this this career, and it was very wonderful, and I could convince myself it was all for a reason for, for quite a while. And um, over time, like the, the that failure really weighed on me. So in in 2016, like a full the 2016 17, it was it was like a full. Um, 14 or 15 years after I left the University of Massachusetts that I called them back and wanted to tr- figure out how to re-enroll and finish um, because I had, you know, I, I was aware that I was ready to pick up some educational like experience and apply that with the, the real life one. And they were, you know, one woman in particular in, in my program office was so gracious in helping me figure out how to, re- how to reverse this, just this destruction that I had done on my transcript to figure out how to re-enroll and, and finish up, finish up my undergraduate career. And then, um, I, I, I did that over the course of a couple of years. I studied for a course, uh, for a test called the GMAT, the graduate management, uh, aptitude test, I believe. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and, and have, I'm just finishing now one year, uh, at the business school at Stanford University. So I'm in California now, just, just finishing up a year long program, which has been just an unbelievable gift to go and step back and think about how you relate to the world, do some self-improvement, think about what you want to do in your life and, and do that alongside of like a cohort of people who were continually impressive and, and pushing you every day. This is incredible because um, yeah. I have to admit, because I started to work during my study and mm -hmm. the problem with it is you, I, I stop, you know, appreciate specific things like, you know, my building compilers. It's like, yeah. why the hell I have to build compilers? I have no, <laughs> everywhere is there is a compiler, we just use one, I don't care how to build one. And, but now I would say, I would really appreciate, you know, to go back to school I just learn about compilers again and about, you know, how to build programming languages, just the fun stuff, or even, you know, numerical mathematics or whatever. Uh, back then was not that interesting to me, but now it will be a complete different experience. So I think y you are really lucky that you are doing this. It was a absolute the right choice, you know, because now not only, you know, you proved that you actually, so you just, you know, repaired your, <laughs> your damage from years ago. So, um, I mean, potential damages was just, in your mind, but I think your career was great. No one cared. I, did anyone actually cared whether you finished the study or not? No one cares actually, right? Um, I think, I think in life, if you're going to push yourself forward, you have to, you have to be the engine of your own change. Yeah, exactly. yeah. No, no one, I mean, no, no one was, exactly. no one was there saying like you're being held back because you haven't yeah, exactly. had enough work experience and, and success and, you know, with, with what we were doing, but, uh, but if you, if you want to really like pull yourself up to a next rung or something, I think you've got to think a little bit about you know what you want to do and then, and then hope that there will be people there that will help you along, along the way. Mm -hmm. And I've been very lucky in my experience that like over the past few years, as I've been thinking about, you know, reaching for another rung to try something new, the support network of people around me have, have been willing to, to invest in that and help and, yeah. and that. You know that is um, a, like like a remarkable privilege. But what's great? So as I understood, you finishing it now. You're in you know, study after fifteen mm -hmm. years break. But yeah, uh, yeah? but now yeah. what it means is, you know, you you are absolute expert because you know you have your expertise from programming. You build, you know, EGB containers, Achillean, whatever. Then mm -hmm. you have um, your expertise as a uh, um, manager from the business unit. And now you are back to school and learned, you know, some hard stuff from back then. So you are, you are now the absolute expert, right? Because you even refreshed the basics again. You had to, I guess, <laughs> because I uh, know you are at the university. So there is no excuse. You had to, you know, the relearn the hard stuff again, right? It's, I mean, it's kind of you to say that. I'll say um, about the expertise. I'm, I'm never going to be the expert in my, you know, in my parents' kitchen. You know, like they still run the show. Everyone still looks at you. Yeah, sure. Yeah in that way. And, um, and I think something I've found with, you know, especially being in this environment over this past year is that like, ugh, there are so many things to learn and so many different ways in which people contribute, um, like their expertise and to be surrounded in an environment where with people that have this, like such varying skill sets, it's so easy to fall prey to this, um, like imposter syndrome to like, well, you know, how do I, how do I fit in here? Or how do I belong here? And, um, it's taken me maybe a year to, to get comfortable with the idea that like, 
I'm sure that there are things that I do that provide value to the people around me, but also it's cool that I'm like just here to receive and kind of learn from everyone around. And it's, you know, because I guess you, you are appreciating more, you know, the content of the, of the course than probably, you know, young students, I think. Yeah, maybe, I mean, maybe so. I, and I hear that it's become more of a popular thing for, for, um, for kids to consider taking a gap year before their, their undergraduate studies. And then, like, I, I wonder how in your case, it was a that. gap decade, right? So the, yeah, yeah, for me, it was like a, <laughs> but, but I, it was all burnout, right? You know, like, and, and I wonder just does a little bit of perspective, is that, is that necessary? I guess it was for me, a little perspective was necessary to appreciate the learning environment. Um, And, and be receptive to it because <laughs> yeah um but if yeah. you started one, one question final question mm -hmm. so if you started sure. to, to study again mm -hmm. uh, have you thought you know a, a briefly what i've done <laughs> why i'm doing to, to myself you know uh, have, like like why have i done this this past year yeah because if you, you know you start to study you say okay i will just restart my career at uh, the university and then you know the hard stuff starts I, i i guess you had to do some base courses or whatever and you say okay why i have to relearn all this stuff you know what mm. i done <laughs> or you just enjoyed everything i i've i've enjoyed every, I, i think i've enjoyed everything yeah, if the first if the first part of my career was about developing hard skills to become like a good software engineer and then a very niche one at that then the second part has been more about like um hey there's lots of different types of people they relate to the world in different ways. Okay. Maybe think a little bit about how you show up for them. And um, for, the, for the skills you want to develop, some of them take years of intentional habit building to develop. So to put yourself on that path is to recognize the, you know, the very painful process in the ways that you're not as effective as you want to be. Mm -hmm. And then the process of trying to change like patterns of behavior And that takes years. And I think, you know, like rewiring your rewiring your habit. Um, and that that's where I'm at now. And I have just nothing but appreciation for being able to like to walk that path a bit. Cool. Hey, this was uh, actually a great interview. So thank you. Where people no, can find you? Have you, I don't know, your Twitter handle or? Oh, yeah, no, sure. Yeah. So my, my Twitter handle is at A.L. Rubinger. Stands mm -hmm. for Andrew Lee Rubinger. Mm -hmm. um, And um, yeah, I think in, in public, that's probably the, the best way, um, the best way to have a conversation. And um, you know, I, I, look, I look forward to it. Adam, it's been awesome catching up with you, man. I, I thank you so much for this. This has been great. Yeah, thank you. As actually, we planned this for almost a year. So, we, you know, we lost track. <laughs> and then I, I just, that's my fault. <laughs> I just, you know, I went through the to-do. So I have, really have to talk to, to you because why I'm doing actually the AHXFM podcast Because mm -hmm. it is exactly what I like with you. I know um, many people from conferences. The problem with me is I never worked for larger companies. I had did you know my job, and conferences were just fun or just leisure. Sure. So I just uh, traveled to the conference, uh, said something, and and you know came back and never had time you know to talk to the people. So now I just misuse the podcast medium you know to have an interesting mm -hmm. one hour conversation about the background, and no one had to pre pre prepare. So I do lots. Of forgotten things, you know, we revealed during the conversation. No, it's it's great. You know, it feels it feels like any of the times that we've sat sat down somewhere outside of outside of a conference hall or something and had to chat. It's great. Yeah. So thank you a lot, and uh, I would like to reinvite you in future. So thank you and bye. I love it. Thanks so much, Adam. Bye.